Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome to another hour dedicated to the discovery of illumination, whatever that might mean. Provocative though we may become, it is all in an earnest, open-minded attempt at becoming enlightened. This is an hour focused on the real philosophy behind the meaning of our values and existence and how we derive the assumptions we live by. It is an hour where we admit that our foregone conclusions could all be wrong. And in that way, truly open ourselves up to the possibility of a new kind of understanding, perhaps a new insight that in some way, somehow may indeed lead to that elusive state known as enlightenment. Now, every week I read a few of your letters as our way of paying tribute to the importance you play in helping us to shape our show and make it even better. Last week, Stephen Halpern was our guest. Tig wrote, thank you so much for bringing Stephen onto your show. He is truly phenomenal. I agree, Tig. I love his music. Margie wrote, I have studied color and sound for many years. Love Steve Halpern and have a collection of his CDs. Thank you for having him on. It's our pleasure. Carol wrote, I listen to Eldon every week on Hay House Radio on my laptop in Johannesburg, South Africa, and never miss a show. I have learned so much and find his topics fascinating. In short, Eldon Eldon is awesome. How very nice of you, Carol. I'm hoping to benefit from his free downloads. Uh, For those of you joining us for the first time, the free MP3 downloads uh, Carol writes about are available on my website, eldentaylor.com. These are not samples. They are the real deal, the patented and scientifically proven effective intertalk technology. So just follow the link under free programs. Now, B wrote, I'm a big fan of your programs and work. Well, thank you, B. And finally, Marty wrote, your show is my favorite on Hay House Radio. Thank you, too, Marty. We try and we'll keep trying. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take today. We're going to be real short with letters. But I do invite you to opine by leaving comments on my website, by emailing me directly at Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at intertalk, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com, or by joining me on Facebook. I do endeavor to read all of your letters, including the very many that... We just can't get them onto the show, but they do impact our programming, so I want to thank you. Now, while I was in San Diego at the Hay House I Can Conference, I met up with my friend Michael Lasky. Michael is the CEO and founder of Gotham Metro Studios and the producer of the recent release, Living Luminaries. We sat down, and the conversation wound around and around the notion of synchronicity and miracles. I shared with Michael some of the miracle stories that were coming to me as a result of my new book, What Does That Mean? Exploring Mind, Meaning, and Mysteries. Indeed, that was the subject of my free newsletter today, and you can subscribe to that, if you wish, at eldentaylor.com. As we noted the synchronicity in our relationship, Michael was reminded of the -the behind-the-scenes stories about Richard Bach's famous work, Jonathan Livingston Siegel. It seems that Bach was running on the beach one day when the entire story was given him, downloaded into his mind, if you will. He went home and put pen to paper, and the book started its rounds with the publishers. Rejection after rejection, and on the second round of submissions, the book was taken, but only after the editor used her once-a-year override power to reverse the rejection already made on the book. Okay, Jonathan Livingston Siegel was accepted, But there was no budget for this book, so Bach was asked for lots of pictures of seagulls to flesh out the story. 
At that time, he was staying with a friend and working on restarting his life. He told his friend of his problem, and his friend pulled out a box full of seagull pictures. He explained that he had received an anonymous grant while in college to take the pictures, and they had never been used. He offered them all to Bach, who cut a deal right then, giving his friend back 10% of the royalties. Coincidence? Last week, Stephen Halpern talked about his own creative experience with, quote, voltage surges. On many occasions, friends and guests to my home and studio have commented on the light show. The surge of bright light that sometimes flashes every few minutes almost to a specific cadence. I've always sensed that this was a presence of beings from the other side. Once my best friend and co-founder of Progressive Awareness Research, Roy Bay, insisted it was a problem with the electrical service. Roy was an engineer by education and profession. So he called in the electricians, but they found nothing. The lights failed to show off while the electricians were in the building. But once they left, they really put on a short but rapid show. Coincidence? I think not. I now have quite a collection of stories about the so-called coincidental, all of them pointing to synchronicity rather than happenstance. I also have received many, quote, miracle, end quote, stories. And I want to thank all of you for sharing. If you have one to share and you have not sent it to me, I invite you to do so now. Some of the stories are truly spectacular, defying rational explanation of any sort. Like the story of a seven-year-old boy lifted by, quote, a big hand out of the automobile just before the high-speed impact that killed everyone else in the car. Some are not as dramatic as that, but nevertheless demonstrative of a failed paradigm, or what I consider to be a failed paradigm, and that's the paradigm that insists there is no God, no supernatural, no miracles, and so forth. That hard-nosed paradigm that would argue we are all just meat machines that happened as a fluke of random chance. Our special guest today is a living testimony to the pure unmitigated fact that not everything can be neatly tucked away into some pillbox explanation from the so-called hard sciences. His book, his story, is one of the most dramatic I have ever read. I cannot recommend it enough. Think on this, though. What would you do if you received a letter from God? Imagine the letter was an invitation to meet. What would you do? Well, our guest today, William Paul Young, tells a story of just this happening. Was it a prank? In his marvelous book, The Shack, Paul, as he prefers to be called, meets God in person. Let's back up, though. Before becoming an author, Paul was a former office manager and hotel night clerk. His novel was self-published but became a USA Today bestseller, having sold one million copies by June 8, 2008. It was the number one paperback trade fiction seller on the New York Times bestseller list from June 2008 to early 2010. Paul has publicly stated that the title of the book is a metaphor for, quote, the house you build out of your own pain, end quote. As of January 2010, the shack has over 7 million copies in print. Okay, let's meet the author. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, William Paul Young. Hey, Alden, good to be with you. It's our pleasure indeed, sir. First off, you know, I love your book. I think it is probably one of the most impacting books I have ever read. 
and I read a lot. So to begin with, I understand your parents were missionaries in New Guinea, and you know you didn't have the brightest childhood. You were molested by the tribe your family lived with. Uh, your life has had more than enough hurt in it for many people. Uh, and this has to play a role in your book, I would think at least. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely, and it, and it does play a role. Um, in fact, a, a writer out of Nashville put it the best I've ever heard, and she said, you know, I don't know your history, I don't know your backstory, but uh, my sense is that Mackenzie, for Missy, actually the, the daughter of the main character, uh, Missy represents uh-huh. something murdered in you as a child, probably your innocence, and Mackenzie is you as an adult trying to deal with it. And that's really true. You know, a lot of people don't know, but this book was never intended to be published, uh, other than 15 copies at Office Depot, you know, because I've never published anything in my life, and I was just trying to um, do something my wife had been asking me, Kim had been asking me for about four years, if I would just uh, write as a gift to our children, um, just something that would put in one place how I think, which is outside the box, as she put it. And uh, I've always yeah, written as a gift. But, uh, I was going to say, it was supposed to be a Christmas gift, wasn't it? It was. For your that, six uh, children? Yeah. Yep, yep. And my youngest is uh, just turned 17, my oldest is 29, almost 30, so... They're not little children, but um, right. it was a way of trying to wrap up my history in a, in a story, because story is, is a beautiful way to express truth. You know, it, it, story, creativity, music, as you know, these things penetrate to the heart without asking for permission, and, and I love that about, about fiction. So I, I wrap the story in, in a fictional tale, but, it, you know, I tell people it's true, it's just not real true it's just not real now that's that's an interesting you know a lot of people that read your book come away with uh kind of mixed feelings uh uh the introduction to the book basically is set in such a way that um you know is this story true or isn't this story true so uh, people that i've talked to say well was there really a serial killer that was uh that was arrested uh, or, or is this just all fiction well, you know, there's been a lot of serial killers, but uh, and and I use that uh, as a way to get to some very deep pain. I think the greatest pain a human being experiences is the loss between a parent and a child. Now, we've had the deaths in our family, not my children, but uh, we had a six-month period in the middle of which Kim's mom at 59 died suddenly, unexpectedly. But on each end of that six months, my 18-year-old brother was killed and my five-year-old niece was killed the day after her fifth birthday. So we know that part of the pain. But the story is is much deeper in terms of personal metaphor, and uh, and it goes it it goes into the places where we get stuck, and and a lot of us do, you know, if relationship with God is as religion has has been constantly telling us is our ability to perform up to God's expectations, a lot of us don't have the capacity to do it. We're, we're just too damaged, and uh, so when I tell people it's a true story, it is. It's it's like a parable. You know, are parables true? Yeah, of course they're true. Are they real? No. They're fiction, for the most part, but they're real in the, in the sense that they, they carry or embody the things that are true. And, and so, you know, the book is a metaphor and a parable. They communicate the truth. Okay, for those in our audience that might not have read the book, and, and I don't, you know, there's a part of me that would just love to tell the entire story, but I want everybody to get the book. But but you as the author, I'm going to ask you, for those in the audience that might not have read this book, 
share with us the storyline so we we have this picture before we we start parsing sure. out questions over the pieces yeah it, it doesn't really fit a genre very well and i think that was why so many publishers turned it down initially and um it is a it's sort of a mystery suspense wrapped up in a what if you know what if there is a god who is good all the time what if there's a god who will show up in the midst of our our deep sadnesses our great sadnesses and uh so Mackenzie is the main character. He has five children, three of which he takes camping. Uh, they're, they're younger children, and uh, he does it over Labor Day one weekend. And uh, his youngest is abducted, and, and they find evidence at this shack way out in the Oregon wilderness that she may have been murdered, And uh, but they don't find a body. And four years later, he gets a mysterious note in his mailbox, and it's written in such a way that that it's a mystery. It could be a prank. It could be from the perpetrator of this evil, it, and but it could be from God, which at this point, Mackenzie has got a very destroyed history himself in terms of his own relationship with his father. All of these things are all wrapped up together, and it's an invitation back to that shack, and he goes back there not knowing what he's going to find, and, uh, and the rest of the story unfolds from there. The first five chapters really set it up, and they're very wrenching. I have to warn people, they're not graphic. I didn't need to go graphic because just the emotions of the whole situation are wrenching enough. And then um, the story unfolds. What, what does he find when he goes back to that, the place of his greatest loss, his deepest sadness? Okay, now Mac, the main character, Mackenzie, enters the shack and encounters manifestations of three persons of the Trinity. God yeah. the Father, who takes the form of an African-American woman. Exactly. Who calls herself Papa, Jesus Christ, who you know is a Middle Eastern carpenter, and the Holy Spirit physically manifesting as an Asian woman um, named Sarahu, uh, Sarahu, wasn't it? Isn't it's, it? Yeah, and the the actual Hindi word is Sarahu, Sarahu. But since McKenzie is a white guy from Oregon, he can't roll an R, so it's just Sarahu. <laughs> Okay, so why these forms? Why? I mean, that that's a very novel. Uh, why these forms? Well, you know, I'm writing this for my children. You have to always keep that in mind, and I'm trying to communicate to them. Now, you know, I wrote it in 2005, which is the year I turned 50, and I'm thinking, what do I want to communicate to my kids? You know, what what do I want to leave as a legacy piece for them? And in this story, I'm trying to say, you know what? I grew up with a very Western religious god. It was uh, uh, the god of Christendom in, in the sense that, you know, but the, the portrayal to me was like Gandalf with an attitude, you know. Um, it was a god who was a white, elderly, uh, grandfatherly type who was basically disappointed and kind of disgruntled about the fact that he had created the universe anyway and was looking for a reason not to include us. And, um, and that God is, is a, largely a projection of my own pain with my own father. You know, uh, it took me 50 years to completely wipe the face of my father off the face of God. I think we as fathers, and as parents in general, but specifically as fathers, I think we, uh, we inform the, the conscience and, and the souls of our children about the character and nature of God in, in very difficult and destructive ways. And then theology comes along and then uh, and makes that... Character, uh, characterization of God, that caricature of God, something even even more profoundly destructive.
person. So it's hard to trust somebody that you don't believe loves you. And um, and so in this in the portrayal of the personalities, the, the persons of the Trinity, I wanted to go outside the box. And um, and so Papa, uh, a woman who calls herself Papa, again mixing metaphors, because God uh-huh. is neither male nor female, um, right. is is a way to say. Let's get outside the box, and in fact, let's let's get God outside the box that we have put God into. And um, Jesus basically gets to play himself, which is great. Although I've had a, about five emails so far saying, "How dare you make him a Middle Easterner?" Which is kind of surprising. And uh, I, I, I'll, need ask, I'll need to ask the Jewish folks, you know, what they really are. I've always thought they were Middle Easterners, but uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> and then uh, you, um, um sidelight story. I was, I was working downtown Portland for a web conferencing company, and uh, I was riding the train when I was working on the, on the original manuscript, and uh, just on yellow legal pads. And I was, the one day I worked for this company in two and a half years that I ended up on Skype, which is, you know, internet uh, telephone, right. um, was the day I was looking for the name for the Holy Spirit. And I ended up uh, in a conversation with Geetika Prabhu from India. And she was looking for a web conferencing solution. Well, I'm looking for a name for the Holy Spirit. So I'm figuring, you know, that there is a God involved in the details, and this works perfectly. So I asked her to give me a list of words for the wind, and uh, because the wind in the Bible is, uh, is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And um, she gave me a, a dozen words. Uh, you was one of them, and I liked it. And I asked her, you know, what uh, if they named their children ever after, because it's a beautiful word. And she said, no, uh, but we have a river named after this. And I said, oh, really? A river. So a river is another metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Then the important question is, so Gitika, what kind of wind is this? Is it, you know, I don't want a tornado, I don't want a hurricane, you know, there's other kinds of wind you don't want it to be. And uh, um, she says, uh, you is the common wind that catches you by surprise. And I went, really? She said, yeah, it's like when you're so hot you think you're going to die. Out of nowhere comes this wind that cools you down and changes everything. And, uh, and it was perfect. It was a perfect picture and metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So that, I wrapped it up in an in a, um, Asian woman. I grew up in Asia, and, uh, and it just, the persona just fit for me. And, and I, wanted, I wanted persons, because I think a lot of times, especially for the Holy Spirit, we've just considered the Holy Spirit sort of a, a mist or a force or a ghost or something. And, and then once there's personhood within the character and nature of God, something profound happens. That is, you have a validation both for relationship and for love. And, and that was really important uh, to me in terms of what I was trying to communicate to my kids. Powerful metaphors. But those metaphors in and of themselves have, have led to attacks on your work. There are <laughs> those uh, Christians out there that that don't have many good things. They think of the book as being rather heretical, if you will. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I would, and I would say that that's a, that's a minority position, but it's definitely there, and I love it. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. I mean, how, how are you going to get a religious person to, to enter the conversation? And, um, you know, you look at the life of Jesus, and, and a lot of times it was by pissing them off, you know? It was... Uh, it was stretching their paradigms and challenging them, and people get angry, and because yeah, they they're afraid, you know. And uh, but you look at Jesus, and and when he did it, when he went out of his way to heal people on the Sabbath, for example, knowing that that was going to tick off the religious people, he did it because he loves religious people. 
wants them to become part of the conversation, even if it's from their point, um, something that's heretical or, you know, infused with uh, lies and whatever. And I've been called all of those things. I even, I even had my first um, protesters, complete with bullhorns and everything. It was in Orlando. And really? I, uh, yeah, I took them, um, it was a hot day, so I took them bottles of water, because I'm kind of intrigued, you know. <laughs> Two years ago, I was shipping out soldering tips and cleaning toilets in a little manufacturer's rep warehouse, and I have protesters, you know, kind of like, wow, this is kind of cool. Cool. <laughs> so, yeah, one of them finally says to me, do you work here? And I said, no. <laughs> um, he said, well, who are you? I said, well, you know, I'm the guy that wrote the book you're mad about. That's, that started the conversation. And come to find out, not one of the protesters had even read the book. And, really? Uh, yeah. And, and that's not uncommon, I think. Sounds like the well, Arizona law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but this is one of those things where when you have a, a, a belief system and you're holding on to it for dear life because you're, you're afraid if one of the, the legs of the three-legged stool gets kicked out, everything's going to fall apart then your tendency is to have this kind of an attack. And, um, um, but you know what? Uh, on the other hand, because people have been against the book, a lot of other people are reading it who would have never read it. So, you know, how can you get mad at them for that? I mean, that's really a cool thing. Controversy does sell, they say. But, I mean, you're right. There are those folks, and they are a narrow minority that would dare call you a pagan a new age person uh, writing occult material that's pantheistic, animistic, and on and on and on. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been consigned to various levels of hell already, so, you know, but I've got good company. <laughs> All right. There was, was even a group, group who was going to uh, burn the book along with, I, I have a friend, Donald Miller, who's written a book called Blue Like Jazz, which is a wonderful book, and, and uh, we were both being burned by, by you know, here's, the, here's part of the irony is that uh, the church who was doing it is called Amazing Grace Church, you know. And, uh-huh. uh, and uh, so I called Donald up and I said, hey, they're burning our book, along with, by the way, Billy Graham and various translations of the Bible, too. And uh, he laughed. He said, you know, that's, what do you mean? And he says, I've been burning yours for a couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> that's a cute line but now just so we get you know the record straight before we go to break we got a hard break coming up on us in about a minute and a half right. this is indeed the minority your book uh was introduced to me by a very uh i would say far right uh, hard-nosed christian a born-again bible baptist uh that uh, just said you know you have to read this book this is really just a fantastic book So I have just a bottom line question. I get a yes or no from you because we have a break coming up or very little added on. Do you see yourself, Paul, as a Christian? Tell me what you think one is, and I'll tell you if I'm one of those. I don't mind mind being one of those, but I'm I'm a Canadian, not a Republican. (laughs) Okay. You know, I'm going to come back to you on that. We will describe that uh, after we take uh, our break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. I want all of you to take uh, the opportunity during the break, if you can, to take a look at the links that are on uh, eldentaylor.com under Provocative Enlightenment that will lead you to the works by William Paul Young, uh, the audio of The Shack, uh, the book itself. And, and again, this is, this is an incredible story. It is uh, an absolutely inspiring, awesome story that does uh, just have a, an incredible metaphor. Uh, 
We're discussing uh, this publishing sensation, The Shack, and we'll be right back after these words from our friends. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? Inner Talk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner Talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier. From losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Confusion, deception, manipulation, feeling a bit controlled, lost. Learn how you can take back control of your life through proven techniques in Eldon Taylor's revised edition of Choices and Illusions. This New York Times bestseller is a guidebook to your journey to self-actualization, filled with practical, real-life solutions backed by scientific studies and guaranteed to awaken your inner genie. Get your copy today from all bookstores. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. I want to remind you that there still is time to register for the Toronto ICANN Conference. I look forward to meeting many of you up there. Okay, if you just joined us, we're discussing the book, The Shack. My guest is the author, William Paul Young. Uh, before the break, we were we were discussing whether or not Paul was a Christian. When I asked that question, he said, I'm a Canadian, not a Republican, so you're going to have to tell me what uh, what a Christian is. Well, <laughs> Fair I, enough. Again, I, again if, we're, if we're on the same page, I don't have any problem with that. I think everything for me, and, and the theology of the book is very early church, Athanasius and the old boys, and, and um, so I fit into uh, that kind of tradition very well. Um, but I'm, I'm not a religious person. I, I'm not a fan of religion. I think religion is destructive. I think that uh, the um, caricatures of God that come out of religion are destructive. And, uh, and I don't think uh, Jesus liked religion either. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a way of separating us. It's a way of dividing us into categories of value. And, and uh, so, uh, you know, I don't mind being labeled a Christian, and I will accept that label in, in many senses if we're on the same page. And that is that we are focused on uh, uh, largely who the person of Jesus is, that Jesus is the God who has come in the flesh, that there is a God who is a triunity of persons, that is uh, one essence but three persons, and that's beyond our ability to comprehend, obviously, but, but um, that this is a relational being, and therefore validates relationships and validates love. Um, if, if you only have a a monad God who's a singularity, you, you don't have a basis for a relationship, or love becomes something that is, uh, that is less than. And uh, 
and I don't believe that at all. I believe that God is truly love, and that nothing that God does is, is uh, motivated by anything other than love. And so everything focuses on Jesus. Everything's by, for, through, and in the person of Jesus. So that would place me right smack in the middle of Christian tradition and theology. And, uh, and I'm comfortable there. I just don't like um, the religious Christianity that has arisen, that, that has caused so much destruction and hurt in the world. And um, again, not a big fan of that. So when people ask me if I'm a Christian, I ask them to tell me what they think one is. And, um, and so participation, relationship, union with, with God in Christ, all of those things uh, matter to me. You you almost have a ditto for from me on that. Uh, we have a number of uh, questions coming out of our chat room and callers on the air. So, so I'm going to take a break from some of the questions I personally have at this point to give honor to those. We have out of our chat room, I think, you know, a really interesting question. Diana asks... And, and and before I say this, it's quite clear, Paul, that your your background as as everybody reads it as a hotel clerk, etc., is exempting uh, a large part of your reading, your scholarship. Uh, it's very clear that you are very well read and very capable of addressing this subject matter. So, Diana asks, "How did this story come to you?" Uh, that's uh. That's, you know, again, going back to what Kim asked me to do, was to put in one place how you think. And, you know, bits and pieces have been there. I've written as gifts for the second half of my life. First half of my life, you write to get the pain out. And uh, for the second half of my life, I wrote poetry and songs and short stories. And, and um, I actually started this with the conversations. That's what I was writing on the train. And uh, basically, it's the questions you weren't allowed to ask while, when you were growing up, you know? especially if you're a religious kid. You find out that there's a whole bunch of these questions that uh, are considered rather rebellious. So I started just having these conversations with God about the questions that I wasn't allowed to ask. And and then uh, I, I got these stacks of legal pads, and I was writing these conversations in the backs of notes and, and uh, napkins and whatever. And I didn't want them to, you know, a good stiff wind to blow them away, so I started putting them into the computer. But the day I started, I was asking the question, who is asking this question and why? And that's where Mac was born. So none of this was really in my head before 2005. And, and like most writers will tell you, I think, as I've talked to them, a lot of times the characters take over the story and you begin to follow them around. And, uh, and it, was a, it was an amazing time. I loved the process. And, and I was working three jobs when I was writing. So I was fitting it in between. I had one Saturday off, for example, um, where I had a full day, Kim was gone with the kids, and I didn't have any jobs to do that day. And uh, and I spent, uh, in eight and a half hours, I wrote four complete chapters. And uh, the fourth of those chapters is Festival of Friends, which is chapter 15. And that chapter is in the book, the way I wrote it, the day I wrote it. It's, it's the only chapter that hasn't been touched in a rewrite process. Wow. Wow. All right, let's uh, let's take a phone call. Madeline in Chicago has been very, very patient. Uh, welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. I'm never home listening to radio, especially live radio. And, oh, my God, this is the book that I've been wanting to read and really, really scared to read because I've had a lot of tragedy in my family, um, and I've had uh, a niece who was brutally murdered, so I was really afraid. 
And when I looked on Hay House randomly, there you are. Oh, my God. So my question is, because I'm really scared to read it. I read the first chapter, and I I think you already answered it partially. Um, I'm thinking and, and, and I'm hoping that the book is, deals more with the questions about who is God, what is God, what is, you know, who, who is this Yeah, it, And it does. That, that is really the centerpiece of the whole story, because for me, everything is about understanding who is, who is this God. Because if, if you get the character and nature of God wrong, then everything's wrong. Uh, and so this is why... I have trouble with certain kinds of theologies that make God out to be a very vindictive, kind of uh, um, untrustworthy uh, person. And uh, the book, the first five chapters are tough, and, and, and on purpose they're tough, but they're not graphic. I didn't go into graphic details, so you don't have to be afraid of that. But it's worth it, because it sets up, it sets up a, a premise um, that says, this asks the best question. The loss between a parent and a child asked the best questions. And I've got over now well over 100,000 emails from all over the world, people telling me their stories, um, like some of the great sadnesses that are in your own life. And so um, keep pushing through, because the majority of the book is aimed at answering the questions that arise out of the first five chapters. And for what it's worth, Madeline, it does an outstanding job at just that. Thank you. Well, you know, just having gotten through and randomly, well, to me, nothing is random, but this proves to me that there is definitely a God. I'm very connected to that source. I'm looking at my computer. I have time this afternoon. I rearranged my appointment so that I can listen to it. And and there you are, right? Oh, my God. No such thing as coincidence. No. I totally agree with that. But can I ask one more question? Are sure. there study groups going on? I mean, are you going to come to Chicago anytime soon? I want to talk to you. Yeah, there are many, many study groups. I mean, the book is just ripped through the whole community, and it's in every, it's everywhere. It's in the prison. I've had the wonderful opportunity of being in a number of prisons because the the book centers on issues of forgiveness and issues of walking through the places we get stuck. Um, I've traveled the last two and a half years a lot. I did, uh, in 08, I did 220 events, and one event could be speaking as much as six times. So uh, in 09, I did almost 200. And so this year I'm putting the brakes on so that um, I can do more of the creative stuff. But if you go to Wind Rumors, there's a link to it, and Wind Rumors is the website that has itinerary stuff on it. and uh, ways to W-I-N-D? R-U-M-O-R-S. Yep, Wind Thank you Rumors. so much. So, and by the way, you're, you have the name of one of my favorite all-time authors, Madeline Lengel. Oh. And, um, so that's really sweet. That's, uh, you don't hear very many Madelines anymore. So that's oh, great. and uh, ironically, I was named after Magdalene from the Bible. Ah. But I changed it to Madeline because of all this religious things. And, you know, I mean, what you're saying rings so real for me. I had so many questions growing up, and I was afraid to ask. I love my parents. They were loving parents, but they were yeah. so involved in that religion. And I think part of the reason the book has had the impact it has is because it's asking the questions we all have. And that's why, when I wrote it, I wrote it for my kids. I didn't write it for anybody else. And, and I'm trying to ask the questions that I want them to know. This is, these are the right questions. These are good questions. Who is this God? If there's a God who is good all the time, why does this kind of crap happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, those are the questions that this book is 
is at least uh, opening up the conversation about. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for writing the book. I can't wait now. I just uh, sweet. look forward thank to it. Thank you for calling, Madeline. Thank you. All right. Let's, Madeline just bridged us perfectly. I have several quotes here out of your book that address just exactly uh, how you see God. Uh, so and I'm going to give you the quote, and I'm going to ask you to give me just a brief explanation of how you saw that or how, okay. you know, how you define that. How's that? Can we do that, Paul? Perfect. Absolutely. All right. Quote, don't ever discount the wonder of your tears. They can be healing waters in a stream of joy. Sometimes they are the best words the heart can speak. Now, these are words being spoken by one of the three, the Trinity, to Mac. What's, yeah. what's that mean? Well, partly it means that human beings are an incredible creation. Every soul, every human being is this creation that makes this physical universe just dull in comparison. And what, what the Trinity and what the characters are, are communicating to Mac is, look, how you feel and how you work through this, how you think, these things matter. They change the, the world. They change the universe. Your tears matter. You know, it's a response to pain. It's a response to hurt. It's a response to questions, all of these things. But it's you at the center of all of this that matters. And I think that's one of the big main messages of the story is that there is not a human being on this planet that does not matter and does not matter to God. All right. Quote two, each relationship between two persons is absolutely unique. That is why you cannot love two people the same. It simply is not possible. You love each person differently because of who they are and the uniqueness that they draw out of you. That is, uh, to me, I totally believe that. And, and I have six children. Uh, what Matthew draws out of me is totally different than what Chad draws out of me or what Lexi draws out of me or Amy and Nicholas and Andrew. And so there is a uniqueness. And I, in Festival of Friends, I tried to describe that using colors. And my imagination is, you know, if I, had a, if I had one idea that I think would be a good idea for God... That is that that we would be able to see our relationships in color, and uh, and then so you know the picture is me sitting. I'm in a coffee shop and I'm talking to one particular friend, and the uniqueness of my relationship with that person is is in the colors that you can see. And then somebody else walks in, and immediately, without me even acknowledging them, just because I know they're present, the colors of that relationship run over or just move over or wave over to that person and envelop them in the the uniquenesses of the colors that that person draws out of me. So it's just this incredible depth of beauty that that is at the center of our relationship that that we don't even understand or see most of the time. And um, that vibrancy and that living color that exists um, uh, amongst us and between us. I just think human beings are unbelievably incredible creations. All right. I love your thoughts. I love your book. Here we go again. Now, this is these are words that are spoken to Mac again by one of the three. Forgiveness in no way requires that you trust the one you forgive. You know, uh, that's huge for me because uh, of the sexual abuse and because of uh, my father being an abusive disciplinarian. You know, it's um, a lot of times we are kind of told that forgive. You're not really forgiving somebody until you trust them, but that's not true at all. You know, uh, trust takes time, and trust involves uh, repentance and confession, where you see 
change in a person over time. But forgiveness doesn't require that that other person change at all. And, and that's part of the beauty of what forgiveness is, that we let go of the throat of the other person, because unforgiveness actually places us in prison. We are in the prison of our own. The other person may not even care, or they might not even be alive anymore. But we're locked into responses, and that person drives so much of our behavior. And forgiveness becomes this, this door that opens up the prison cell. And um, by the way, you know, there's, there's a big section on forgiveness, and, and part of what I wrote in that section is definitely coming right out of my own heart. So Mackenzie, I'm writing it from Mackenzie's point of view, the main character. But what I didn't anticipate is that this book is ripping through prisons. And there's this one scene where Papa's talking to Mackenzie about forgiveness, and, and it's almost like Mackenzie is saying, look, if, if you're on my side, you don't be loving on the perpetrator. You don't have any care or consideration for the perpetrator. But now the perpetrators are reading that same section where Papa is arguing with Mackenzie on their behalf. And I'm up in a women's prison up in Edmonton a, a year ago, and, and this gal, after I'm done talking, one of the inmates comes over, collapses in my arms, and just begins to sob. And between her sobs, she says, do you really think Papa's fond of me? And I just hugged her and I said, honey, he's especially fond of you. And she says, that's all I needed to know. That's all I needed to know. And, and what religion has done, it's separated us from the reality of the love of God, that there is a God who is ferocious and relentless, who loves us, but will not become an abuser even to heal us, that participation is part of the majesty of this creation, of who we are in relationship to this God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, Paul, way back in the mid-'80s, uh, we ran a double-blind study at the Utah State Prison where we were attempting to utilize a technology that I developed to uh, lower hostility and aggression rates and perhaps interrupt the recivity rate, and we looked at all kinds of special psychometrics and um, trying to des- determine what what kind of languaging we would use if we were to prime self-talk and and somehow change this inmate population from the inside out. Yeah. The fact of the matter is, you, you know, we had three magic messages that we settled on, and there were some people that, you know, that, that questioned these messages, but the messages today, you know, I, I just call the forgiveness that I forgive myself, I forgive all others, I am forgiven. And the power of this program and the prison system in this study was just, it, it, it overwhelmed everybody. The, the, system, the entire Utah State Prison put a voluntary library through all their facilities, and it was cloned out to another a number of other prisons. But there is, you know, there is just solid, hard evidence today. This is a long time ago. It's 25 years ago. This power of forgiveness is, is the most incredible gift that you can give uh, someone that that looks at themselves as having zero no value and or have gone over the line and have no redemption yeah. uh, capacity yeah, yeah. and, and, and a, i do think that go ahead i've got a great story out of out of mississippi um jackson met a gal there who flies in the helicopters in afghanistan she's a military uh-huh. nurse and she takes the flights that get shot at all the time it's almost like she has a death death wish and and um it's largely, this shell is largely because when she was growing up, she was regularly molested by her father, and as she calls him, my father's brother, her uncle. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then she ran into the shack, and this issue of forgiveness came front and center for her. And then she gets a call saying, 
you're the nurse in the family, dad is dying, he's got six weeks to live, you need to care for him while he's dying. And she just saw this as an opportunity that God had set up for her to move into this area. And so she got to where he was, and he'd, he'd already, before they could even have this conversation, he'd slipped into a coma and got deeper and deeper into the coma. And she waited for him to come out so that they could talk while she realized he's not coming out. This is just, he's going to die inside this coma. So she pulls up a chair next to his bed, takes his hand and says, Daddy, I'm here to ask for both of our forgiveness. And then she began to go through all the things that he had done and how it had affected her relationships with men, how it affected how she viewed herself, all of these things. And then she began to forgive him. And it was at 3 o'clock in the morning, and she is just pouring this out. I forgive you for this, and I forgive you for this. And she is naming these things specifically. And as she is naming these things and forgiving him, tears start running down his face. Just a flood of tears running down his face. And she says, Paul, there is no way a human being could tell me that major things were not transacted during that conversation with him in this deep coma. And I agree. I totally believe that. Forgiveness is powerful. Yeah, incredibly. That, that's a story that I'm going to be repeating, I'll guarantee you. All right, next, <laughs> next quote. Uh, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it. Yeah. You know, so many of us have grown up within a religious construct that said that, oh, let me put it, this, uh, there's another gal I met. She said, you know, this is how I used to see God. He was like a father who had twin boys. They're about four years old, and they're all playing in the backyard. And he gets a phone call. And uh, he says to the boys, he says, look, you boys, you need to uh, stay out of the pool. You know, bad things will happen to you if you go into the pool. Don't go in the pool. Well, ten minutes later when he comes back, sure enough, there they are, drowning in the pool. And he says, oh, see, I told you. I told you not to go in the pool. Bad things would happen to you in the pool. Oh, but I want my neighbors to think that I'm a good father, so I'll save one of you. And that story just just penetrated me deeply because it's part of the caricature of which we have God who sets a standard, has a set of expectations, and then when we don't meet those expectations, punishes us. I, I met a gal named Jenny, and she grew up in a, chur- in a church. She was a preacher's kid like me, and, uh, and I was a missionary kid, but then I was a preacher's kid. And then, uh, But she was told that when bad things happen to you, it's because God has to punish you for the bad that's in you. And she was even told by her parents that she was God's punishment to them. It was horrible. And she grew up in this environment where she was always had to live in some perfectionist kind of mentality, you know, trying to please God, which is the mantra of religion, rather than learning to trust God, which is the reality of relationship. And when she was diagnosed in her 30s with stage 4 colorectal cancer, you can imagine where she went. What is right. so evil about me that God has to punish me with stage 4 colorectal cancer? And it was the shack that yanked her out of her depression. And I was with her three times, physically, two, one, the last time, two weeks before she died, a year ago last fall. And, um, and she was no longer afraid. You know, what, if you've got a God who is not on your side, is not for you, you're always going to be in this conflict, conflict mode. You're always going to be trying to live up to God's expectations. And, and that's not child at all. Yeah. 
exactly. And that's what, you know, that's a large part of what's happening, you know, right now in our society, in my opinion. This cultural relativity, this absence of, of values and more, you know, the decay of morality, I, I think it all comes down to, you know, if I can't trust you, I have no reason to believe in you, and there's no reason for me to trust you, and this doesn't make any sense, and da-da-da. Indeed, that's what at least my take on it. Paul, we we just have a little over a minute left. Uh, I want everybody to be able to uh, learn more about you. There are links at Provocative Enlightenment, but what have you got coming up? Are you working on another book? Do you, I, mean, uh, I am. Uh, tell I'm our listeners on... how to reach you. Uh, a couple different ways. I'm working on a narrative autobiographical book that will just say, you know, how did this happen? What was my great sadness? Where did I get stuck? And, and you know, Mackenzie's weekend represents 11 years of my life, so... That's, uh, that piece is coming. I'm working on another fiction, not a sequel, uh, same kind of genre, and um, also working on a screenplay for a potential film. We'll see how that um, pans out and works out. Um, but I'm well, excited best that. of luck there. Yeah. I'd, love to, um, I'd love to see The Shack as a movie. I, I would, too, and, and we just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any hurry about it, neither is my family or my friends, so we'll just take it a little step at a time. This was, a, this was an unexpected God thing, and... And frankly, I'm not interested in asking God to bless things that I'm doing. I'd rather uh, see if it would be okay to participate in things that God is blessing. And uh, All right, Paul. Yeah. Give everybody your website one more time. Spell it out, it is, please. It is windrumors.com. W-I-N-D-R-U-M-O-R-S. Windrumors.com. You are a wonderful guest. We're going to ask you to come back. I can tell you that now. I have got pages and pages of of remarks and comments here that I'd just love to talk to you about. I would love to do that. Thank you, sir. We've come to the end of another hour of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank you all for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed our show. And we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, believing in yourself really always matters. Good day, good evening, good wherever you are.